This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, February 9th, 2023. Chinese spy balloon developments, new details from the State Department about the capabilities and extent of the program. U.S. Senators asked what they learned in a classified briefing from military and intelligence officials. A Senate committee hears from Defense Department witnesses about why the Chinese balloon was not shot down earlier and what's being done to prevent another balloon crossing the United States. And the U.S. House unanimously approving a bipartisan resolution calling the balloon a brazen violation of U.S. sovereignty. Southwest Airlines Chief Operating Officer apologizing to a Senate committee for the more than 16,000 flight delays during the holiday season in December, blaming it on the big winter storm that upended the company's ability to schedule flight crews. But the Senate hearing revealing some disagreements between Democrats and Republicans about how to prevent a repeat of the Southwest meltdown. We'll talk about that with a reporter from The Hill. First hearing today of the House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. President Joe Biden is in Tampa, Florida, talking about prescription drug costs and Social Security and Medicare funding, his second stop of the week after his State of the Union address. And the U.S. House passes two bills overturning District of Columbia laws, one allowing non-citizens to vote in local elections, the second changing the Washington, D.C. criminal code. The story from the Associated Press, the China balloon shot down by the U.S. was equipped to detect and collect intelligence signals as part of a huge military-linked aerial surveillance program that targeted more than 40 countries, the Biden administration declared Thursday, citing imagery from American U-2 spy planes. A fleet of balloons operates under the direction of the People's Liberation Army and is used specifically for spying, outfitted with high-tech equipment designed to gather sensitive information from targets across the globe, the U.S. said. Similar balloons have sailed over five continents, according to the administration. A statement from a senior State Department official offered the most detail to date linking China's military to the balloon that was shot down by the U.S. last weekend over the Atlantic Ocean. The public details outlining the program's scope and capabilities were meant to refute China's persistent denials that the balloon was used for spying, including a claim Thursday that U.S. accusations about the balloon amount to information warfare. That from the Associated Press. On Capitol Hill, House members and senators getting classified briefings about the Chinese surveillance balloon. Some of the senators coming out to speak with reporters after, including Bob Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, and Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, member of the Armed Services and Intelligence Committees. First, Senator Menendez. Look, I think that uh, when you hear the totality of all the information, 
Uh, I believe, and it's interesting to hear some of my, a couple of my Republican colleagues who may have been skeptical believe that the administration acted correctly in how it dealt with the uh, surveillance balloon of the Chinese, uh, sent a very resolute message, including uh, stopping the Secretary of State from his visit, the downing of the balloon, and I think all of those sends a very resolute message to the Chinese. I think there are two takeaways, though. One is we're going to have to have the ability to deal with what has been publicly reported by some of our military that they have a domain awareness gap. That has to be taken care of. The United States cannot have a domain awareness gap. What does that mean? We have to be able to understand everything that may be coming towards our country in every dimension, from space, from the continental parts of our country, uh, and elsewhere. And so that's something that I think we need to be working on to ensure the national security of the United States. Secondly, uh, is a policy question. What do we now do uh, with Xi Jinping in terms of making him understand that there are consequences for this action? And that's something that I look forward to working with the State Department, the administration, to be able to unfold. Senator, do you buy the explanation that Xi didn't know about this, that this could have been a rogue balloon? I don't, I don't know who said that he didn't, but uh, it is possible that, in fact, um, that the People's Liberation Army, uh, who is uh, viewed as uh, conducting this program, may very well have been operating and that while she may have known uh, about the totality that such a program exists, that specifically this one was traveling over the United States at that time, uh, it is very possible that he did not. Regardless of whether he did or he didn't, there have to be consequences for it. Um, because uh, there certainly be consequences for our country if the President of the United States didn't know, but some element of the United States government did it, uh, you're ultimately responsible. She is responsible for our country. After the, after the information that you just learned, what is your sense for the threat level that it posed? Oh, I, I, I don't think it posed a threat uh, to the United States in any of the traditional senses, right? I don't think that there was any American who was in any threat or harm. Uh, the only question is that we cannot allow whether there was a threat or not, and I don't believe there was a threat, there wasn't, that at the end of the day, you cannot permit our sovereignty to be invaded by any country for any purpose who does not have uh, our uh, approval. And that has to be a global message, including to the Chinese. Thank, Thank you, guys. Senator. Senator Cotton. So after the information... So, I hate to disappoint you. We haven't learned anything more than what everyone always knew. China sent a spy balloon to fly all across America. The Biden administration had a chance to shoot it down over Alaska, and they chose to let it spy all across America. End of story. So after the information you learned, what is your sense for the threat level that it posed? Um, well... As we all know, it was a spy balloon trying to collect information across the United States. I will say that you don't know that in advance, though. We have suspicions, but you don't know in advance. That's why we shouldn't let Chinese aircraft float on their merry way all across the United States, especially when we have a chance to shoot it down over Alaska. Was there any discussion about what would happen in the future or whether or not in, in future balloon situations they would just... I mean, the administration... Look, the administration doesn't want to commit 
to anything because they want the flexibility to do what I'm sure they would have done here if some enterprising pilots and photographers had not spotted this balloon over Montana. Let it go on its merry way, not tell Congress, not tell the American people, and certainly not shoot it down. Senator, do you think this is a rogue operation or do you think Xi authorized this uh, audacious balloon flight? I think it's safest for our nation when we're dealing with communist dictators to always assume things start at the top. Was there any effort to persuade you that the, it was the right decision to let this thing go all the way across the country? A heroic effort of spin and deception that carried zero, zero plausibility. The administration has no plausible explanation for why they didn't shoot this balloon down over Alaska. Are you what at all frustrated that, yeah. What about the previous four balloons that may have traversed the United States going undetected by our military? Has that been addressed? Do you feel like you've been adequately? Well, I mean, as the, so the, so administration officials began to spin all of you on Saturday night and Sunday morning trying to claim, oh, this happened in the last administration to excuse, excuse their own negligence here. Only once they were called out by officials from the former administration did they acknowledge, well, we only learned about this after the fact. Um, so it, it is concerning that China can fly these high-altitude balloons across our country without um, our uh, recognizing it at the time, something our military needs to focus on going forward to ensure that no kind of aircraft can get over American airspace without our detection. So you, do you believe, you don't believe that those balloons existed during the Trump administration, or you just think that it was? It wasn't known at the time. That's what, that's what all of you have reported, right? Well, no, but you, I mean, you are now clued in on this, right? I mean, like, and you weren't clued in before, right? Is there any frustration that there, you weren't clued in on the, So especially last week, the administration had senior officials from the military and the intelligence agencies on the Hill when this balloon was over the northern United States before it was released publicly. They should have briefed Congress at the time. They should have at least briefed the Gang of Eight at the time. Did you receive confirmation there that this was, in fact, a spy balloon? Well, I mean, you can just look up at it and see what else was it doing up there. Have you gotten any... But have the administration has confirmed that it was, in fact, a spy balloon? They sure have been leaking a lot to you guys on background that it was. Senator Tom Cotton, Republican. Before that, Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat. Two of the senators coming out to speak with reporters after a closed-door classified briefing on the Chinese spy balloon today on Capitol Hill. NBC News article has this. The Chinese balloon that flew above the U.S. for eight days included multiple antennas capable of collecting signals intelligence. A senior State Department official said Thursday, and the balloon maker has proven ties to the Chinese military while China condemned the U.S. for destroying what it said was a weather balloon. State Department official described the balloon as carrying equipment designed to collect communications and threatened action against Beijing. The Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense holding a hearing today about the Chinese balloon. Senator John Hoven, Republican from North Dakota, asking about that decision to shoot it down over the Atlantic Ocean after it had crossed the United States. Here are the answers from Lieutenant General Douglas Sims, Joint Staff Joint Staff Director of Operations, and Melissa Dalton, Assistant Defense Secretary for Homeland Defense and Hemispheric Affairs. The Russians test our airspace all the time, and you scramble fighters to interdict them because you're saying nothing can fly over our airspace. That's sovereign airspace. So now we're in a new day where our adversaries get to try to figure out what you're going to let fly over and what you're not? No, sir. So I, I think, and, and kind of back to Senator Tester's uh, earlier comment, I would say, f first of all, we are certainly grateful for the support from this committee and for your trust, sir. Um, I would tell you that throughout this, General Van Erk and the men and women who were serving under him uh, had American safety in mind throughout. And at any moment, had it 
presented an, a, some sort of intent to hurt Americans, they would have taken that balloon out of the sky. It would have happened. I would tell you that is the same should something else happen. General Van Erk, the rest of the military stands ready, whatever threats come. But we do expect that they will assess and report. And in this case, sir, he assessed and reported based on the intent and based on uh, where it was at the time. So there's some things they can fly over or near Hawaii. There's some things they can fly over Alaska, but maybe not over California or possibly over Montana or North Dakota. It's just kind of, you know, you decide based on the circumstance. Doesn't that create a situation where our adversaries are going to test what you think can and can't fly over different or proximity to different parts of the country on a regular basis? Senator. And is that is that good? How are you going to prevent that kind of thing from now being tested, you know, even more than you already are? And you're going to be in the, are you going to start making subjective decisions about different types of aircraft and what proximity and where they can fly, what states they can and can't fly over, or Guam, or, you, you know, pick a spot? This is where it seems to me we're getting into a, a dangerous place in terms of how this was handled. Senator, if, if I may, this flight was different than all the rest, and that's why we took the action that we did. Um, to the question of building upon um, General Sims' notes about the why we didn't take it down over Alaska, a key piece of this is the recovery. For us to be able to exploit and understand this balloon and its capabilities fully, if we had taken it down over the state of Alaska, which is part of the United States, it would have been a very different recovery operation. Um, as Senator Murkowski knows, the water depths offshore, the Aleutians, um, at six-plus nautical miles go very quickly from about 150 feet to over 18,000 feet near mm. the, the Bering Sea. The winter water temperatures in the Bering Sea hover consistently in the low 30s, which would make recovery and salvage operations very dangerous. Additionally, the northern portion of the Bering Sea has ice cover, which can be extremely dangerous, um, which would induce additional risk. So again, a key part of the calculus for this operation was the ability to salvage, understand, and exploit the, the capabilities of the high-altitude balloon. And we look forward to sharing that with you in a classified session and also openly as we learn more. With the indulgence of the chairman, just finishing up here, um, those are the kind of things I think are important. People want to understand that. People support our, our men and women in, in uniform. We appreciate what you do. We, are, I mean, we owe you our lives, and we are deeply thankful for that. But, but Americans don't understand this situation. And so they need to understand why the decisions were made that were made and, you know, whether or not that is what is best for uh, national security. Senator John Hoven, Republican from North Dakota, questioning Melissa Dalton, Assistant Defense Secretary for Homeland Defense and Hemispheric Affairs, and Lieutenant General Douglas Sims, Joint Staff Director of Operations at today's Defense Appropriations Subcommittee hearing. The subcommittee chair is John Tester, Democrat from Montana. And as he begins putting together a budget proposal, he asked Melissa Dalton and another witness, Jed Royal, Principal Deputy Assistant Defense Secretary for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs, how best to defend against future balloons. We're talking about putting a budget together for the Defense Department. It was a really robust budget last cycle. Um, I don't remember hearing about anything that dealt with balloons in the budget. Um, do we have a plan on how what we're going to do next time this happens? 
Senator, thank you. Um, as you know, in the national defense strategy from 2022, um, the PRC is the, the pacing challenge. I know, but what about the balloons? I got, I got all the other stuff, and we deal with it. Absolutely. Is there, is there money in the budget, or if you're not into that, if you're not in that pay, pay grade, yep. do we have a plan for when this happens again and what we're going to do and when we're going to do it? I will tell you this, uh, and I appreciate the, but, but the truth is we think we know what they were going to collect. We don't know. That scares the hell out of me. Senator, thank you. It, it, it is incredibly serious, and please know um, as we are recovering the, the balloon and learning more about it and also kludging that with what we learned um, last week, um, we are building our understanding of what capabilities they have, what we need to do okay. going forward. And, and what about, and I'm over time, and I, 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 this is the last thing, so you can answer it, I hope. Do we have a plan for the next time it happens and how we're going to deal with it? Um, because quite frankly, I'll just tell you, I, I don't want a damn balloon going across the United States uh, when we potentially could have taken it down over the Aleutian Islands, no offense to Alaska or Alaska, or in some of the areas in Montana. And I understand public health. I understand doing damage. I understand that could have been a nightmare. But the truth is, is I, I got a problem with, with a Chinese balloon flying over my state, much less the rest of the country. Senator, absolutely. We sent a very clear message to the PRC when we shot it down in our sovereign airspace, in our sovereign waters, um, that has established that deterrent line. Um, Jed, if you maybe turn to you in terms of communications with the PRC. Yes, thank you, ma'am. Um, we continue to conduct outreach to the PRC. We conducted outreach uh, during the course of the events last week and have attempted subsequently. Part of the plan is to encourage uh, the Chinese administration to open their and lines of communication. With you, can, you can tell the folks at 1130 <laughs> that in classified session, I want to know what our response is going to be for the next balloon that comes over. Military response. The Senate Defense Appropriations Subcommittee hearing today, that's the chair, John Tester, Democrat from Montana, questioning Jedediah Royal, Principal Deputy Assistant Defense Secretary, and Melissa Dalton, the Assistant Defense Secretary for Homeland Defense and Hemispheric Affairs. C-SPAN cameras were there. We've got the full video at our website at cspan.org. This from CNN, Congressman Michael McCall, chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, said he is one of the Republicans who encouraged GOP leaders to change a Chinese spy balloon resolution so that it condemned China instead of the Biden administration, which was the original plan under consideration. He said we wanted to, it to be America against China, not internal fighting, because China would see that as a moment of weakness that we're divided on party lines. And we didn't want to project that. We want to project that we're united with one voice against China and a 419 vote demonstrates that. He is referring to today's vote on the resolution on the House floor, 419 yes, zero no. Here's Congressman McCall during that debate. The balloon, I believe, is a test, a test of this administration to see how it would respond. I believe the president should have shot it down before it entered American airspace rather than allow it to cross over the continental United States airspace. But make no mistake, this was another intentionally provocative act by the CCP. And as I've said often, weakness invites aggression. This act will only further embolden and empower our enemies 
It will embolden and empower our chairman Xi. Mr. Speaker, I've never seen a foreign nation adversary fly a reconnaissance aircraft that you could see from the ground with your own eyes. The CCP threat is now within sight for Americans across the heartland, a vision and memory that they will not forget. This is further proof that the CCP does not care about having a constructive relationship with the United States. It is publicly challenging U.S. interests, threatening Taiwan, supporting Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine, and now violating U.S. sovereignty. If there's any question whether the administration should request funds supporting Taiwan's foreign military financing grants, this incident alone should make it clear that the time is now to harden ourselves and our partners against the Chinese military aggression. An event like this, Mr. Speaker, must not happen again. And it cannot go unanswered. They only understand one thing, and that is force. And that's projecting power. And we need to project power and force and strength against the Chinese Communist Party. They must understand that we do desire peace, but infringing upon our sovereignty leads us down a dangerous path. Our adversaries must believe that any future incursion into American airspace by a spy balloon or any other vehicle will be met with decisive force. Republican Congressman Michael McCall, Foreign Affairs Committee Chair on the House floor today. Again, this resolution condemning China for, quote, efforts to deceive the international community through false claims about its intelligence collection campaigns passed by a vote of 419 to zero. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, has said he would like to see a similar bipartisan resolution on the Senate floor. This is Washington Today. Southwest Airlines Chief Operating Officer Andrew Watterson testifying today before the Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee about the company's over 16,000 flight cancellations between December 20th and 29th. In his opening statement, he apologized and explained why it happened. I want to sincerely and humbly apologize to those impacted by the disruption. It caused a tremendous amount of anguish, inconvenience, and missed opportunities for our customers and our employees. During a time of year when people want to gather with their families and avoid stressful situations. We understand that for many, this is perhaps the most important trip they take all year. Again, on behalf of Southwest Airlines, I'm deeply sorry. Still, we've been mindful that an apology alone, no matter how heartfelt or how often stated, uh, would not uh, suffice. We immediately recognized we had to take care of our customers, and with regards to disruption, we did so in a variety of ways. Allowing customers to rebook their travel at no cost, effectively doubling our normal time for rebooking, granting all reasonable reimbursement requests for our customers' out-of-pocket expenses, including hotels, rental cars, meals, tickets on other airlines, and other necessary expenses like replacement car seats and strollers and pet-sitting services. We promptly uh, processed refunds requested by customers for unused airfare for any Southwest flight canceled or severely disrupted during this period. We prioritized returning the bags to their, their proper owners. I'm pleased to report that except for a small percentage of recent requests, we've completed all those steps. It has truly been an all-hands-on-deck effort, and our people will not let up until the requests are completed. We also made an additional gesture of goodwill, 25,000 rapid war points, roughly a $300 value to every customer significantly impacted by the disruption. So why did this happen? Let me be clear, we messed up. 
and I would like to explain to you how we messed up. In hindsight, we did not have enough winter operations resiliency. From where and how we de-ice aircraft to the cold resiliency of, of our ground support equipment and infrastructure. Our high rates of cancellation in Denver and Chicago, where 25% of our flight crews are based, caused our crews to be displaced. At this point, the disruption changed from a weather event that all airlines experienced to a crew event that was unique to us. And once again, when I say crew event, it's nothing to do with the behavior of our employees, it's to do with how we manage the crew network. As the storm moved east, other Southwest airports of all sizes in the central and eastern part of the country began experiencing similar uh, operational disruptions and the cascade of challenges led to waves of cancellations within two hours of departure. This overwhelmed our crew scheduling processes and technology. We had upgraded this system earlier in the year, but we were taking a fresh look at it and other systems of how we should improve. Southwest Airlines Chief Operating Officer Andrew Watterson before the Senate Commerce Committee. In terms of numbers, he said that Southwest has received over 284,000 eligible cases for reimbursement from customers who had flights canceled, and all but 11,000 have been handled. Each affected customer getting an apology, flyer points, and resources to contact Southwest. During today's Senate hearing, the committee chair and ranking Republican talking about the role of the federal government in preventing another Southwest Airlines-style flight schedule meltdown. First, here's the chair, Democrat Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington State. But I do believe this sector needs a more effective policeman on the beat. They need someone over at the Department of Transportation who is going to get the job done. When we need to make sure that consumers are consulted, that their reimbursement fees aren't continually being held up, or as the president said the other night, making sure that children get the access to seat next to their parents. I know that these things seem like very basic consumer issues, but somehow they have been taken for granted. And I think that this incident shows us that we have to get serious about this. Senator Maria Cantwell, Democrat from Washington State, chair of the Commerce Committee. The ranking Republican is Ted Cruz of Texas. He had a different take on how the federal government should handle this, what they should be doing and not doing. As a customer, if I'm not confident of an airline's ability to get me from point A to point B on time, I'll choose a different airline. Southwest knows this, and it's how they have earned so many customers over and over again. And the Biden Department of Transportation doesn't seem to have quite the same faith in consumers. Last month, the Department of Transportation announced that it is investigating whether Southwest engaged in, quote, unrealistic scheduling for the holiday season. This provision of law permits the Department of Transportation to decide if a singular route is chronically delayed, which means it is delayed by more than 30 minutes, more than 50% of the time. Never one to let long-standing and well-reasoned precedent stand in the way. The Department of Transportation now plans to investigate the sensibility of the entire schedule, armchair quarterbacking the scheduling and operations of an entire industry. That's just foolish. Regulatory overreach, as egregious as that, would undermine decades of progress in air travel, harming the very consumers that, that DOT claims it's trying to protect. 
Senator Ted Cruz, ranking Republican on the Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee. Now more on today's Southwest Airlines hearing with Carl Evers Hillstrom, reporter with The Hill. Thanks for being here. So all sides think the thousands upon thousands of flights canceled during the big holiday snowstorm is a very bad thing, shouldn't happen again. But today, was there any agreement on how to do that? Uh, There wasn't a ton of agreement um, among lawmakers on sort of how to proceed. I think both sides agreed that Southwest needs to upgrade its scheduling systems that went haywire. Um, They need to, to make sure that they fix a lot of these technology issues they had. Um, and, and Southwest said that they are investing uh, uh, billions of dollars into that. Um, so I think lawmakers want to just kind of keep tabs on Southwest, but um, there wasn't a lot of agreement on kind of the government's role. Uh, Democrats made the case that the uh, uh, Congress needs to pass uh, stricter laws to sort of regulate the airlines and the industry to prevent this from happening again, whereas Republicans uh, really pushed back on that and said, you know, it's it's really up to the free market to, to decide this. And if Southwest continues to, to struggle, um, the consumers will um, uh, not choose them, basically. Uh, and really pushing back on the idea that there should be new rules or, or any kind of action from Congress to try to prevent this kind of meltdown from happening again. The Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has been very vocal and and doing a lot of interviews whenever this stuff happens. What was the uh, the senator's take on what his role has been and should be? Well, Republicans have always been eager to criticize the secretary, um, especially on this. Uh, they, they were coming at him uh, for the recent FAA uh, disruption that forced the U.S. to ground all flights um, in January. Um, and they have been saying that that really, um, you know, Buttigieg has not been doing a good enough job, uh, you know, getting a handle of this stuff. Democrats have really been saying that Buttigieg actually needs to be a little bit more aggressive in uh, cracking down on the airlines in terms of fining them when they they overbook flights or uh, implementing new rules uh, to basically try to crack down on fees uh, as well as um, delays and disruptions and things of that nature. So. Uh, you kind of have Republicans uh, saying that uh, Buttigieg is, is, is doing too much in, in terms of going after airlines, and Democrats are saying quite the opposite. As Senator Markey brought up uh, an issue today looking for not just reimbursing passengers with a possible even of a flight, but actually giving them cash for what they went through. What's the chance of that passing? Uh, I don't think it's high. I, I think the, I think Republicans in Congress have really pushed back on trying to dictate or sort of, I should say, using the government to dictate how airlines should go about their operations. Um, uh, Senator Markey was saying that um, customers, when they uh, have their flight delayed and are reimbursed for some of these expenses, that it should be cash instead of airline credits. And that's really been a, a central focus for Democrats. But like we saw in this hearing, Republicans were just were really not interested in um, engaging in that kind of legislation. We're talking with Carl Evers Hillstrom with The Hill, with the chief operating officer of Southwest testifying. Did he give some indication that the problems that caused the, the recent meltdown are being fixed? Well, he said that uh, on Friday they uh, hope to have the problem fixed. They hope to implement this new uh, system. Uh, they said that they found a glitch that was kind of the 
main driver behind its scheduling meltdown, where we saw um, pilots were spending uh, almost an entire day trying to figure out what flight they should even be on, uh, couldn't even get through to to management to find that out. Um, they also said that uh, they're working on uh, areas of, of sort of de-icing the planes and, and having more resilience to deal with winter storms. Um, they certainly made the case that uh, the worst is behind them and that they're going to to, to fix things, but um, they weren't able to commit you know, to senators that this kind of thing will never happen again. You had an opportunity to see the entire hearing today. Anything else uh, strike you as uh, newsworthy? Well, I, I think it's it's just interesting seeing the two uh, different strategies of, of how, how to tackle this, you know, from Democrats and Republicans. Um, you know, this was just such an outrageous event. And I think a lot of people were hoping that something would come out of it. I, I just, it doesn't seem to me that there's going to be much compromise on this. And if anything, it, it seems like it might be an opportunity for sort of more partisan battles in terms of, um, you know, Democrats criticizing uh, Pete Buttigieg, or I should say Republicans going after Pete Buttigieg. Um, so I, I, I just, I do think it's interesting that there was sort of this united front in terms of criticizing Southwest. Uh, but in terms of actually um, anything coming out of that, uh, I, I don't know if there's going to be much action from Congress that we're going to see. Carl Evers Hillstrom is a reporter with The Hill and his story and on this hearing at thehill.com. And on Twitter, he's at Carl M. Evers. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And Southwest Airlines says that all the canceled flights from December cost the company about $800 million and will cost another 300 to $350 million from reduced bookings in January, February, into March, as some passengers stayed away. Wall Street today, the Dow down 249, NASDAQ down 120, S&P down 36. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you get your podcasts. The House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government held its first hearing today. An NBC News article has this. The subcommittee was created by the new Republican House majority to investigate alleged discrimination by the federal government against conservatives. The panel is part of the House Judiciary Committee, also chaired by Congressman Jim Jordan and has subpoena power. Here is Congressman Jordan, part of his opening statement. In my time in Congress, I have never seen anything like this. Dozens and dozens of whistleblowers, FBI agents coming to us, talking about what's going on, the political nature at the Justice Department. Not Jim Jordan saying this, not Republicans, not conservatives, good, brave FBI agents who are willing to come forward and give us the truth. And this is just the FBI. Americans have concerns about the double standard at the Department of Justice. Americans have concerns about the disinformation governance board that the Department of Homeland Security tried to form. Americans have concerns about the ATF and what they're doing to the Second Amendment. And of course, they have concerns about the IRS and the thousands of new agents who are coming to that organization. And finally, there are concerns about what we've learned in the Twitter files, where big government and big tech colluded to shape and mold the narrative and to suppress information and censor Americans. Over the course of our work in this committee, we expect to hear from government officials 
and experts like we have here today. We expect to hear from Americans who've been targeted by their government. We expect to hear from people in the media. And we expect to hear from the FBI agents who have come forward as whistleblowers. We think many of them will sit for transcribed interviews as one did on Tuesday. And we believe several of them will come and testify in open hearings. And finally, we expect to bring forward legislation that will help protect the American people. We hope our Democrat colleagues will work with us. Congressman Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, chair of the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, opening up today's first hearing of that subcommittee. Back to the NBC News article about the hearing. The subcommittee is formally tasked with investigating how the executive branch collects information on and investigates U.S. citizens, quote, including ongoing criminal investigations, and is likely to take a look at the FBI's August search of former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. That was brought up today as Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, Democrat from the Virgin Islands, ranking member on the subcommittee, gave her opening statement. I suspect much of the investigations, the majority, my Republican colleagues want to look into and potentially muck up, involve criminal investigations into former President Donald Trump. I want to be crystal clear. My Democratic colleagues and I will resist any attempt by this subcommittee to derail ongoing legitimate investigations into President Trump, any other president, and others within his orbit. During the course of this subcommittee's work, I suspect we will hear both members and witnesses describe the events of January 6, 2021 in ways that simply do not mesh with reality. When this happens, I would encourage everyone watching today to review the impeachment record and report of the January 6th Select Committee, which lays out the true facts in shocking detail. Congressional Delegate Stacey Plaskett, Democrat from the Virgin Islands, ranking member on the new Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. She was also a member of the January 6th Committee in the last Congress. She opened up today's hearing, first one of the subcommittee. The witnesses today included current and former members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, former FBI agents, and George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley, who said that this issue is complicated. My testimony that I've submitted to the record goes through the constitutional case law that applies to this issue of when the government goes too far. And I say that these are really very heavily contested questions. There are cases on both sides. And in some of my discussions, I say that actually I think the social media companies have a better argument. And in some parts, I think that there are legitimate issues here that might trigger the First Amendment. There are two different aspects to that analysis. One is that we do have direct action shown in the Twitter files by government employees. So we don't have to get into what I spend most of my time on, which is agency theory under the First Amendment. We know that there were dozens of federal employees who tagged or targeted particular posts and posters for possible elimination and suspension. Now, we can question whether that was a directive or a partnership or a coordination, but there was direct government conduct. So the question for this committee, first and foremost, is do you want your government in that business? And we can have, I hope, a civil and, and a respectful conversation about that. George Washington University Law Professor Jonathan Turley at today's hearing. Again, the first hearing of the new House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. 
We covered it all at C-SPAN, and the full video is available at our video library at cspan.org. President Joe Biden continuing his post-State of the Union events across the country, a stop today in Tampa, Florida, talking about prescription drug costs and funding Social Security and Medicare. The Tampa Bay Times writes the country is gearing up for yet another contentious election in 2024, one in which Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is likely to be a key player. Neither President Biden nor DeSantis has officially announced their intentions, but both are expected to run. Of course, President Joe Biden, a Democrat, Governor DeSantis is a Republican. Is President Biden focusing today on another Florida lawmaker, Republican Senator Rick Scott? Now, you may have seen we had a little bit of a spirit debate at the State of the Union. (laughs) I, uh, (laughs) well, I guess I shouldn't say anymore. (laughs) But we, particularly in Social Security and Medicare, Republicans seemed shocked when I took out the pamphlets they were using about cutting Medicare and Social Security. Read from, you know, Senator Scott's proposal. Read from a proposal from the senator from Wisconsin. They were offended. Liar, liar. By the way, the last person said that on the floor of the Senate got censored by the Senate, by the Congress. But there are about four or five, I don't know how many. I reminded them that Florida's own Rick Scott is the guy who ran the Senate campaign committee for Republicans last year, had a plan to sunset. Maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe he's seen the Lord. But... (laughs) But he wanted the sunset, meaning if you don't reauthorize it, it goes away. Sunset Social Security and Medicare every five years. I was not likely to get voted out, but I'll tell you what. It's likely it got cut drastically if you had to do it every five years. The very idea the senator from Florida wants to put Social Security and Medicare in the chopping block every five years, I find to be somewhat outrageous. So outrageous that you might not even believe it. But it's what he said. I won't do it again, but I will. <laughs> 12-point American Rescue Plan. One of the points, all federal legislation such that's every five years. The law is worth keeping. The Congress can pass it all over again. Look, if it doesn't get reauthorized, it goes out of existence. If Congress wants it, they got to keep it, and they got to vote on the same thing. And then, uh, in case there was any doubt, just yesterday, he confirmed that he still, he still likes his proposal. Well, I guarantee you, it will not happen. I will veto it. I'll defend Social Security and Medicare. President Biden today in Tampa, Florida. Senator Rick Scott this morning was on CNN talking about funding Social Security and Medicare. Nobody believes that I want to cut Medicare or Social Security. I've never said it. I've never said it. In that same plan, I said Congress needs to once a year tell the American public how they're going to make sure those programs don't go bankrupt because they're in the verge of bankrupts. And here's the difference between Joe Biden and me. I've never proposed it. In 1975, he has a bill, a sunset bill. And it says it requires every program to be looked at freshly at least every four years, not, not just cost, but worthiness. And, Caitlin, he said, when I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in government. So here's the difference. I've never proposed it. He proposed it in the bill and he fought for it year after year after year. Senator Rick Scott, Republican from Florida on CNN this morning. This debate on Social Security and Medicare funding coming up. 
in the context of discussions over how to raise the nation's debt limit and Republicans' requirements that they want a plan to reduce a federal budget deficit to go along with the debt limit increase. Treasury Department saying it needs to be increased by June, early July to avoid a default. U.S. Senate back in session today. They were off Wednesday. So the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, getting his first opportunity to talk on the Senate floor about President Biden's State of the Union address. 13% of the American people believe the state of our union is strong. 13%. Just 16% say they're better off financially today than they were two years ago. But on Tuesday night, it took President Biden the most words in the history of the State of the Union to declare that everything is actually going swimmingly and he doesn't plan to change a thing. To working families who've been crushed by historic inflation because of his policies, President Biden offered to cut a few dollars off the fees of concert tickets and hotel stays they can't afford anyway. To Americans who are worried that he just let a Chinese spy balloon surveil our country from coast to coast, the president described his slow and unsteady reaction as a big success. To a country that is already teetering on the brink of recession, because of him, President Biden proposed even more gigantic new tax hikes. To the American people who are frightened and furious about surging violent crime, President Biden took aim at the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens and implied that taxpayers need to pay even more welfare spending before we can expect people not to commit murder. The president paid lip service to the obscene quantities of foreign fentanyl that flow across our open borders and kill our people. But his main border proposal was to dangle the prospect of amnesty for people who come here illegally. He repeated his broken promise not to sign tax hikes that hit the middle class when he has already hiked taxes on American jobs and American energy. Country got to hear a lecture about treating political opponents with respect from the president who lied about state voting laws and compared half the country to Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis. And a lecture about our democratic institutions from the president who endorsed permanently breaking the Senate so that his party could grab more power. President Biden expressed not one ounce of contrition or accountability for the fears that have hurt families, cost his party the House, and left only 16% of Americans better off financially now than they were on Inauguration Day. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, today on the Senate floor. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, said in a Fox News interview on Wednesday that the Republicans who heckled President Biden during the State of the Union address were passionate, but that it was probably better that they not take the bait from the president. Today, the House Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, questioned about the outbursts. Have you spoken with or will you speak to Speaker McCarthy about some of the conduct of his numbers, uh, you know, taking on his president, calling him a liar and things? You know, he is responsible. He didn't gavel anybody down. 
uh, during the speech the other night, should he have been more aggressive in trying to preside over the House of Representatives? I have not had uh, that conversation with Speaker McCarthy, but as far as I'm concerned, the behavior of the extreme MAGA Republicans speaks for itself. And I'm confident that the overwhelming majority of the American people found that aggressive, childish, petulant behavior by the extreme MAGA Republicans who were yelling and screaming on the floor of the House during President Biden's State of the Union address to be distasteful. Congressman Akeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, minority leader at a news conference today. The U.S. House passed two resolutions today that would overturn two laws passed by the District of Columbia City Council. One allows non-citizens to vote in local elections. The other updates the city's criminal code. The U.S. Constitution gives Congress the authority to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over the federal capital district. Speaker Kevin McCarthy speaking in favor of the resolutions today on the House floor. Two new acts from Washington, D.C. City Council will dilute the vote of American citizens and endanger city residents and visitors. Today, the House of Representatives will vote to stop these acts from taking effect. I urge all my colleagues to support these resolutions. Now, let me start with the voting resolution. Last year, Washington, D.C. passed a law that would give the vote to illegal immigrants. The law makes no exceptions for foreign diplomats or agents who have interests that are the opposite of ours. Under this bill, Russian diplomats will get a vote. Chinese diplomats could get a vote. The CCP is already infiltrating our culture, our farmland, our skies, but the D.C. City Council will let them infiltrate our ballot boxes. Just today, we had a classified briefing for all the members of Congress talking about what the CCP just did last week over the skies of America. And now the D.C. City Council wants to open up the ballot boxes for the CCP. Even the Washington Post opposes this idea because, as they wrote, it would give an estimated 50,000 non-citizen residents who live in Washington, D.C. to cast ballots in local elections. But, of course, these elections can set the laws that cover the White House, Congress, and, other, and even government agencies. If we set this precedent, other cities will follow, and faith in our elections will plummet. Now, let me address the crime resolution. To date, to date, early in this year, early in February, there are now have been 65 carjackings in Washington, D.C., just this year alone. That is more than one every single day. Two weeks ago, two 18-year-olds carjackers crashed into two Capitol Police vehicles just yards from this floor. The suspects were quickly arrested by the Capitol Police, but tragically, carjackings, shootings, and other crimes have become 
a reality of everyday life in our nation's capital. In 2020, Washington, D.C. defunded the police. From that point on, the city government has done nothing but pass laws that have clearly made the city less safe. Today, many residents are worried about taking their kids to school or going to the grocery store. But rather than attempt to fix the problem, the D.C. City Council wants to go even easier on criminals. Their dangerous new criminal codes soften penalties for violent crimes like assault, carjacking, rape, and even in most types of murder. If enacted into law, criminals would be treated like they are victims, and victims will be treated like they don't matter. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, on the House floor. The District of Columbia has a non-voting delegate, currently Democrat Eleanor Holmes Norton. She spoke out against both resolutions up in the House in the separate debates on each. First, the one dealing with voting. The Revolutionary War was fought to give consent to the governed and to end taxation without representation. Yet the nearly 700,000 D.C. residents cannot consent to any action taken by Congress, whether on national or D.C. matters, and pay full federal taxes. Indeed, D.C. residents pay more federal taxes per capita than any state in the union and more total federal taxes than 23 states. The legislative history and merits of this legislation enacted by the DC Council that is the subject matter of this resolution are irrelevant to the question before the House. But I do want to set the record straight. The DC Council passed the legislation on two separate occasions as required by Congress, by votes of 12 to 1 and 12 to 0 after holding a hearing. The legislation is also unprecedented. It is not unprecedented. Indeed, there's a long history in the United States of non-citizens being allowed to vote in local, state, territorial, and federal elections. Eleanor Holmes Norton, the D.C. congressional delegate on the House floor during debate on that first resolution overturning the D.C. Council law on non-citizen voting. Delegate Norton also speaking during the debate on the second bill that they're voting to overturn, the one dealing with updating the D.C. criminal code. The legislative history and merits of the legislation enacted by the District of Columbia that is a subject of this resolution are irrelevant to the consideration of this resolution, since there is never justification for Congress nullifying legislation enacted by the district. But I would like to set the record straight. The revised criminal code comprehensively revises DC's criminal code, which has not been done since it was created in 1901. Everyone in the D.C. legal legal system agrees that such a revision is long overdue. The bill is the product of over a decade of work by uh, D.C. to create a modern, comprehensive, systematic criminal code. 
uh, a majority of states, uh, both red and blue, have adopted such a code. D.C. Congressional Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, Democrat, on the House floor. The resolution to overturn Washington, D.C.'s law on the non-citizen voting in local elections passed the House today, 260 to 162, 42 Democrats joining Republicans in voting yes, and then a separate vote on the D.C. law overturning it, revising the one that revised the criminal code. That passed 250 to 173, 31 Democrats joining Republicans in voting yes. Both bills now go to the Senate. This is the first time since 2015 that the U.S. House has passed a bill to overturn a Washington, D.C. law. Congresswoman Angie Craig, Democrat from Minnesota, her office putting out a statement today. This morning, around 7.15 a.m., Congresswoman Craig was assaulted in the elevator of her apartment building in Washington, D.C. She defended herself from the attacker and suffered bruising, but is otherwise physically okay. She called 911 and the assailant fled the scene of the assault. There is no evidence that the incident was politically motivated. She also says she's grateful to the D.C. Metropolitan Police for their quick response and asked for privacy at that time. That from Congresswoman Angie Craig's office, Democrat from Minnesota. New York Times story, the Nicaragua released 222 political prisoners early Thursday, including an American citizen, in a deal negotiated with Washington that marks one of the biggest prisoner releases ever involving the United States, according to senior Biden administration officials. The Nicaraguan government, which sought nothing in return, agreed to release the prisoners as a way to signal a desire to restart relations with the United States. The Biden administration has imposed sanctions on the government and family of President Daniel Ortega in recent years as the country has slid into autocratic rule and targeted opponents in civil society, the church, and news media. That from the New York Times. More on this today at the State Department briefing with spokesperson Ned Price. These people, now that they're here, whose custody are, are they in? Is it your response? Is it DHS? Is it HHS? Who's, and, and, and how long are they able to stay? Sure. Uh, so, Matt, this was an effort that uh, was the result of concerted engagement by the Department of State. Um, today's outcome is, is very welcome news. It's very welcome news for these 222 individuals. As I said just a moment ago, it's a positive, constructive, welcome step uh, from the Nicarag- Nicaraguan government. To your question, uh, while the engagement with the Nicaraguan government was spearheaded by the Department of State, uh, we've worked very closely uh, in the final days uh, of this process to ensure uh, that these individuals will have what they need upon arriving uh, in the United States. Uh, The vetting uh, that they are undergoing is something that's conducted by CBP. DHS also plays uh, a broader role. Uh, But we're also working with partners beyond government to see to it that these individuals uh, have a roof over their heads. We've arranged for hotels uh, for them for some time. We're uh, providing them with uh, short-term assistance. We're also engaging with NGOs, uh, resettlement NGOs, who are uh, very skilled and experienced in precisely these types of operations. The resettlement NGOs are mainly for re- refugees. These people are not con- considered to be they are, refugees. They are, right? they are here under uh, humanitarian parole. They're being paroled into the United States. Uh, but we're also working, we have worked with the diaspora population, knowing that there is a very active and engaged Nicaraguan diaspora population here in the United States, uh, who we imagine and are confident uh, will be here to, to greet these individuals uh, and to welcome them to the United States. State Department spokesman Ned Price at his briefing today as Nicaragua 
releases 222 political prisoners, including political opposition members, business figures, student activists, and journalists. An NPR article has this. Speaking on Nicaraguan state TV in the morning, a judge said the government had decided to deport the prisoners in order to protect peace and national security. He said they have been declared traitors and can never again serve in public office. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night. 